Deuteronomy 27, chapter 27, beginning to read with verse 4. Let us hear the word of God. Therefore it shall be when ye be gone over Jordan that ye shall set up these stones which I command you this day in Mount Ebal and thou shalt uh, pilaster them with, with, with plaster and, thou shalt, and there shalt thou build an altar unto the Lord thy God an altar of stones. Thou shalt not lift up any iron tool upon them. Thou shalt build the altar of the Lord thy God of whole stones, and thou shalt offer burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord thy God. And thou shalt offer peace offerings, and shalt eat there, and rejoice before the Lord thy God. And thou shalt write upon the stones all the words of this law very plainly. And Moses and the priests, the Levites, and Moses and the priests, the Levites, spake unto all Israel, Israel saying, Take heed and hearken, O Israel. This day thou art become the people of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt therefore obey the voice of the Lord thy God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. And Moses charged the people the same day, saying, These shall stand upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people when ye are come over Jordan, Simon and Levi and Judah and and Issachar and Joseph and Benjamin and these shall stand upon Mount Ebal to curse uh, Reuben, Gad and Asher and Zebulun, Dan and Naphtali and the Levites shall speak and say unto all the men of Israel with a loud voice cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image an abomination unto the Lord the work of the hands of the craftsmen and putteth it in a secret place, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. May God bless this reading and hearing of his word. We have followed the children of Israel in their exodus from Egypt to the Promised Land. Today we come to the most interesting instructions that are given by Moses concerning what they shall do upon entry into the land, the very first thing that they shall do once they have secured the, <clears throat> the initial portion of land which they will conquer. The procedure that they are to follow <clears throat> is outlined in the 27th chapter, and uh, we read in the, first, in the fourth verse, that they were to publish the law on plastered stones. Therefore it shall be, when ye be gone over Jordan, that ye shall set up these stones which I command you this day in Mount Ebal, and thou shalt plaster them with plaster. In verse 8, <clears throat> And thou shalt write upon the stones all the word of this law very plainly. That's not clear whether the law here is just the Ten Commandments or whether it includes all of the amplification 
of these Ten Commandments that we have in chapters 12 through 26 in this book of Deuteronomy. But at any rate, whether it's the summary statement as we have it in the Ten Commandments or all the details, they were to write the law on these plastered stones, very large and plain. And then they were to place six tribes on Mount Gerizim and six tribes on Mount Ebal, two mountains close beside each other. The tribes that are be placed on each mountain are listed. <clears throat> the tribes that uh, the uh, head of the tribe had uh, was born of a free woman were to be placed on Mount Gerizim. The tribes, uh, <clears throat> other than that, were to be placed on Mount Ebal. The Levites are located among the group that will be placed on Mount Gerizim. Then they are to pronounce blessings and curses <clears throat> with accompanying amens. In verse 12 and 13, these shall stand upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Verse 13, these shall stand upon Mount Ebal to curse. And he lifts, lifts the tribes. Now, <clears throat> notice the part that each group plays in this. The part the Levites play. In verse 14, the Levites shall speak and say unto all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image, and so on. The Levites apparently would pronounce the blessings and the curses. The Levites were the tribe that the priests were taken from. We could think of them really as today's preachers in a sense. If we are careful to realize that every Christian today is a preacher in one sense or another and is a priest, the Levites were to pronounce the blessings and the curses. And while the tribe of Levi was located on the Mount of Blessing, a portion of that tribe was also apparently located on the Mount of Cursing. The basic purpose and the end for which the ministry is given is to be a blessing to people. But they also have the additional duty of pronouncing God's curse on those who go against his will. Sometimes we must stand on Mount Gerizim, but then also there are times when we must stand on Mount Ebal and pronounce the curse. The people, and the part that they played, they were to say, Amen. As the priests echoed, Cursed be those that make any graven image. All the people on Mount Ebal were to say, Amen. And when they pronounced blessings from Mount Levi, all the people there would say, Amen. Here's the first antiphonal choir that we encounter. We can understand the people saying amen to the blessing, but how could they say amen to the curses? Why would God require it? Matthew Henry, the famous old commentator on scripture, has said, number one, it was a profession of their faith in the truth of these threatenings. It was their acknowledgement that these weren't just bugbears to frighten children and fools. These were very real warnings of very real punishments that would come to those who went against God's will. 
Again, uh, he suggests that it was an acknowledgment of the equity of these curses. Not only were the people required to say these curses shall be, but that they should be, they ought to be. It was right for God to curse those who went against his will. And it was as if they were implicating themselves, bringing an implication upon their own heads. In other words, they were saying, if we do thus and so, let the curse of God fall upon us. Very, very solemn. We <clears throat> see the procedure, and we see the part that each group played. Notice the particular sins that are enumerated. Now, there are sins against the second commandment, making any graven image, and we need to not remove that from ourselves. We can worship idols, too. We worship money. We worship popularity. We worship any number of things other than the true God, and we have our images that we bow down to. Violations of the second commandment. Violations of the fifth commandment come immediately next. Cursed be anyone that makes light, <clears throat> sets light by his father or his mother. Again, violations of <clears throat> the Eighth commandment about stealing. Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark. Again, uh, the violation of the seventh commandment. Sexual sins plays a great part in this. The violation of the sixth commandment about murder. All of these commandments listed in particular. <clears throat> but notice verse 26. Not only are particular commandments singled out and violations have curses annexed, but the violation of any commandment. In verse 26, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. The violation of any commandment to any degree brought a curse. The way this is phrased in the New Testament when Paul quotes this verse in Galatians 3.10, Cursed is everyone that doesn't continually do all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Any violation at all of God's commandments brings this curse. And ultimately it means hell. It means eternal separation from God. It brought many temporal curses, but it also brought eternal separation from God. We wonder <clears throat> when we encounter something like this. Uh, it's obvious that according to these terms, no one on the face of this earth, including you and me, is going to be saved. Not a one of us is going to escape that curse. And we wonder as we read something like this, is God mocking us? Is God setting forth impossible terms of mercy to us and blessing? Notice something else that they were to do. In verse 5, 
And there shalt thou build an altar unto the Lord thy God, an altar of stones. Thou shalt not lift up any iron tool upon them, and thou shalt build the altar of the Lord thy God of whole stones. Thou shalt offer burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord thy God, and thou shalt offer peace offerings, and shalt eat there and rejoice before thy Lord thy God. Right next to these plastered stones upon which the law was published, God had them place an altar. What does the altar point to with this burnt offering? It points to the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the way in which men can have that curse removed from them that every man is under. Paul goes on to say, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. And he says that man is not justified by the works of the law. It is evident, for the law says, This do and thou shalt live. He says, But the just shall live by faith. It is a biblical principle. We realize that God was placing the law there but he was also placing right next to it his alternate approach whereby sinners can come before him and be accepted and be at peace with him and rejoice before him and fellowship with him. This great picture of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The law shouted at men and thundered at men, but it pointed them to God's great way of forgiving sinners through his son whom he would send. You know, it still seems hard and unreasonable for God to make such a requirement as perfect, perpetual obedience, though, doesn't it? We think, why? Why not uh, at least give us a little room? Why have it perfect obedience? Why this curse pronounced for one infraction of the law. Charles Simeon has suggested that had the requirement been any less, had God had had God allowed some sins, and then after a certain number of sins, he pronounced a curse upon us. Number one, he says, this would have been less worthy of the great lawgiver. We wouldn't have really understood what God is like, just how holy he is, just how just he is. Not only would it have been unworthy of the great lawgiver and not been a valid exposition of his nature, but it would have been more erroneous to man because had death been annexed to many transgressions rather than to one, we should have been at a loss to know where we stood. We wouldn't be sure whether we were saved or lost. We wouldn't be sure just where we stood with God. As it is, every man knows exactly where he stands. As far as the law is concerned, he's ruined. No question about that. If you've sinned one time, you're under the curse. You know where you stand. You know what you need. As he says, we should have been with more difficulty drawn from seeking righteousness by our obedience to the law. It should have been less evil to us to transgress it, and we should have been less anxious to flee to Jesus Christ and obtain an interest in him. It would have failed to exalt Christ 
the way this does. Because many men would have been saved apart from Jesus Christ, and the others uh, would have been saved partly by themselves and partly by Christ. Now, really, it was a blessing to man that God did it the way he did it. What was the purpose of this particular procedure that they went through of publishing the law and then pronouncing these blessings and curses? Its purpose was obviously, number one, to motivate, to impress, to move their hearts to obedience. You see, while they couldn't attain salvation on the basis of their, forgive, of their obedience, there's no way any man can attain salvation by keeping the law. Nonetheless, once we are saved, this is God's will for our lives. This is the path of blessing. And as a nation, for the nation of Israel, this was the path for God's blessing upon them as a nation. Again, another purpose was to indicate the connection between heaven and holiness. Remember in the symbolism that God was laying out in the entire movement of the Exodus, that Egypt represented a, a state of bondage and guilt and judgment. The promised land represented heaven. We are brought out of Egypt. We are on our way to the promised land. In the promised land of heaven, men are holy. They are just men. They obey God. They serve him there day and night. And if we are to have a valid representation of heaven, the people must obey. As Fairburn in his book on the typology of Scripture says, Canaan stood to the eye of faith the type of heaven, and the character and condition of its inhabitants should have presented the image of what there shall be, who have entered on the kingdom prepared for them before the foundation of the world. The condition of such we are well assured, shall be all blessing and glory. But it is never to be forgotten that their condition shall be thus replenished with all that is attractive and good because their character shall first have become perfect in holiness. No otherwise than as conformed to Christ's image can they share with him in his inheritance. For the kingdom of which they are destined heirs is one which the unrighteous cannot inherit, nor shall corruption in any form or degree be permitted to dwell within. So it was necessary that the people be holy if they are to represent the state of those in heaven and be happy. And that's why as the years went on, when the people violated so much in their pattern and in their character, this characteristic of holiness, it was necessary that they be expelled from the land, or else we have a false picture of what those are like who go to heaven. It was given to motivate. It was given to indicate the character of those in heaven. It was given to differentiate between the precious and the vile. Israel was a blessed nation, chosen of God. But the people within that nation needed to understand very clearly that anyone who did the kind of things 
laid out here as a pattern of life who had no part nor lot in the matter, that they, in effect, while they were a part of the nation of Israel, were not a part of the true people of God. Every church member needs to understand that. The church is the blessed of the Lord. Blessed is that nation or that people whose God is the Lord. This is not America or any other nation. This is the true church of God. But those who are church members of the visible church need to understand that unless their state is one of holiness, unless they do the Lord's will from day to day, they have no part nor lot in the matter. And so the curses must be pronounced along with the blessing. Notice the particulars of the blessings and curses that are dwelt upon. In the 28th chapter, he goes into the particulars of the blessing that shall be theirs and the particulars of the curses. Why? Because just a general pronouncement of blessing and a general pronouncement of curses are not nearly so effectual to motivate as when you specifically begin to detail just what these will be. If I say to my son, if you don't quit doing that, I'm going to punish you, that may move him. But if I go out and I get a switch, and it's good and thick, and I say, unless you quit doing this, I'm going to strike you with 40 lashes, save one, that has a lot more power to motivate. Spelling it out. And God spells it out in this 28th chapter in terms of <clears throat> the condition of blessing. It says, It shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come to thee and overtake thee. God will overtake you with blessing. This applies to you and to me today, just as well as it did to them. God will bless you. And while the blessings mentioned here are primarily in terms of this life, temporal, material blessings, and the blessings promised in the New Testament to you and I take more of a spiritual nature, even so, in the New Testament, material blessings are promised to those who do his will. And as far as they are in accord with our spiritual good, and who would want material blessings beyond their spiritual good? Christ said in Matthew 6:33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, speaking of material blessings, shall be given unto you, shall be added unto you. They will overtake you. In verse 2, all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, blessed shalt thou be in the field, blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy cattle, and the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep. In verse 8, the Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses, in all that thou settest thy hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Not only that, but he will establish you in holiness. The man who uses the means that God has provided and seeks to do God's will, God will give him the grace of doing his will, the grace of being holy. 
The Lord shall establish thee and holy people under himself, as he hath sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God, and walk in his ways. But, in verse 15, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments, in verse 16, Cursed shalt thou be in the city, and cursed shalt thou be in the field. Cursed shall be thy basket and thy store. Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy land, and the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep. Cursed shalt thou be when thou comest in. Cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. Verse 23, Thy heaven that is over thy head shall be brass, and the earth that is under thee shall be iron. Brass heavens, iron earth, no rain, and hard ground to till. The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies, and so on. In verse 37, 36 and 37, The Lord shall bring thee and thy king, which thou shalt set over thee, unto a nation which neither thou nor thy fathers have known. And there shalt thou serve other gods, wood and stone. And thou shalt become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all nations, whither the Lord shall lead thee. You know what? You begin to pick up as you read this that not only is he entering into the particulars of the blessing and of the curse, and they experience the blessing, but he's making a prophetic statement of just what is going to happen. Over in chapter 30 and verse 1, it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee. It's a prophecy. We just read the part which apparently prophesied their 70-year captivity in Babylon, not to mention the destruction of the northern kingdom by Assyria. Then we have a further prediction given, which Matthew Henry and other expositors see as speaking of the destruction which came upon Jerusalem in 70 A.D. by the hand of the Romans. In verse 49 of chapter 28, The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as an eagle fly. It's interesting that the emblem of the Roman army was the eagle. When they entered Jerusalem, They carried that emblem with them. It speaks of five particulars that would take place. Their land would be laid waste. Their city would be besieged. Due to this, there would be a terrible famine, and people would eat their own children. If you've read the description of the besiegement of Jerusalem by Josephus, he mentions particulars where women ate their own children. And then it goes on to say <clears throat> that he will scatter them upon <clears throat> with, among all nations. In verse 63, 
It shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught. Isn't that a terrible thing? Sin is of such a nature that it even makes God rejoice over punishing us when he has to do it to exonerate his justice and his holiness. God who hates such and who delights in blessing is so moved against sin to bring you to naught and ye shall be plucked up from off the land whither thou goest to possess it. And the Lord shall scatter thee among all people from one end of the earth even unto the other. And there shalt thou serve other gods which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. And among these nations shalt thou find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest. But the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart, and failing of eyes, and sorrow of mind, and thy life shall hang, hang in doubt before thee. Thou shalt fear day and night, and shall have none assurance of thy life. In the morning thou shalt say, Would God it were evening, and in the evening thou shalt say, Would God it were morning, for the fear of thine heart, wherewith thou shalt fear. If that's not a description of what happened to the nation of Israel, I don't know what is. This came to pass in 70 A.D. and ever since. He's got a great proposal here. The proposal is spelled out earlier in the 11th chapter when Moses mentions this procedure that they're to follow when they get into the land of the blessing and the cursing on the two mountains. And he says in chapter 11, verse 26, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse, a blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments, but turn aside out of the way. A great proposal. Choose. Great alternative. And the choice is yours choose you this day. The choice is yours. You decide whether you'll be blessed or whether you'll be cursed. You decide what your fate shall be. I don't mean to minimize the fact that God chooses. God chooses who will be saved and who will not be saved. We've already seen this in the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy that it was God's electing love put on an individual that marked that person out for blessing. But not to minimize that, we mustn't neglect the fact that every individual must choose whether he will do God's will or whether he will not. Every individual must choose whether he will accept God's great sacrifice of Jesus Christ as his approach to God, or whether he will seek to approach God under his own law-keeping. You make that choice. No man ever is forced to go to heaven against his will. Those who go are made willing in the day of God's power. And no man will ever be able to blame God with his being lost. Jesus said to the people of his day, Ye will not come unto me, that you might have life. 
He said to the Jewish nation, How often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, and ye would not. You make the decision. You choose whether you will be blessed or whether you will be cursed. Every man can know where he stands. You know whether you are under the curse of the law or not. You know whether you've committed your life to Jesus Christ or not. Do you unreservedly seek to do his will every day, conscious of falling short, nonetheless it's the purpose of your heart to do his will, and when you go against his will, you're grieved over it, you mourn over it, you turn and you seek again to do his will? Do you trust in Jesus Christ alone as your only hope, your only approach to God, and do not base your approach on your own good record? Choose you this day whether you'll be blessed or cursed. Let us pray. There's one here who knows that he has not, in sincerity, committed his life to Jesus Christ, that he is under the curse, and he wants right now to choose the blessing. He means business about Christ's will being done in his life. Right now, in your heart, pray this prayer. Lord, I thank you for being my great sacrifice, for dying for my sin. I thank you for offering me the free gift of salvation. I do submit my will to you as my master. I do place my trust in you as my alone Savior. And in faith, I thank you that you have given me the gift and have come to dwell in my heart right now. Amen.